This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com. Call to Adventure, hosted by Alexopoulos and John Duckworth, an exploratory conversation about facing the unknown, an opportunity to discuss those pivotal moments that illuminate new paths and reveal deeper purpose and meaning in our lives. Okay, welcome to another episode of Call to Adventure. This is John Duckworth here with Alexopoulos, and we are super stoked to have with us today an incredible artist, Chris Jordan. Chris, who lives in Seattle, works with photography, digital assemblage, and film to create unmistakable bodies of work in unified themes exploring contemporary mass culture. His series Intolerable Beauty and Running the Numbers give artistic visual form to the enormity of global consumerism. His collection, In the Wake of Katrina, Portraits of Loss from an Unnatural Disaster, feature the devastation in New Orleans post-Katrina, and while the images are devoid of any people, they read as intimate portraits. A previous winner of the prestigious Prix-Pixtet Prize in Paris, he traveled to Kenya to document native tribes and the killing of elephants for their tusks, producing photographs with a haunting mixture of beauty and horror. His latest work brought him to Midway Island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to capture firsthand the consequences of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch on a colony of albatross who are feeding toxic plastic to their young. This turned into an unexpected eight-year journey culminating in the creation of an original feature-length film called Albatross. What began as a documentary morphed into a powerful, paradigm-shifting, contemplative poem about contemporary culture, interconnectedness, grief, and love. This is our first true long-form podcast and couldn't have come at a better time because it felt like a real luxury to spend two hours talking with the incredibly inspiring Chris Jordan. I planned on asking him to demonstrate some Tibetan throat singing for us, and it was the first thing he did when seated in front of the mic. So we figured it would mark a nice transition here into a conversation that we hope you enjoy as much as we did. Cheers. Messes all the tongue and the throat opening up. Yeah, yeah. Right on. I love it. Just get yeah, the drone no going. Let's then... just start with that. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I think that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. how we're starting. There you go. We got that, didn't we? Oh, I got the tail end. Oh, okay. nice. Sweet. All right, good. Here we are. Chris Jordan, thanks for being here, man. I'm so stoked to be here. Right on. Um, and you're here uh, as part of uh, the Halsey Institute. Uh, Mark Sloan invited you to town. Uh, for an, exhi- uh, an exhibition, Sea Change, right? Yeah, it's the first time I've showed my still photographs and my film in the same venue. Nice, nice. Uh, and it's on through December 9th and in conjunction with uh, Aurora Robson, correct? Yeah. Okay. 
I'm super stoked to be connected up with her work as well. Her installation Pretty is wild. a total knockout. Oh my gosh. I haven't been in yet to see that, so I'm excited. I mean, of course, I'm Andrew King, who helps me in my studio, has been helping with that installation, and he's been showing me pictures along the way. It looks pretty epic. Uh, yeah, you walk into it, and it's like this fantasy underwater world with like giant jellyfish and glowing orange oh, wow. like squid and plankton and stuff like you're in this microscopic world and it's it's really beautiful and then you get up close and every single piece of it is made out of plastic bottles recycled bottles right just things yeah. she's found well i think or... it's mostly tide bottles oh wow it's all this oh. kind of glowing orange color uh... and she she worked at a laundromat and got everybody's tide bottles and so it was like 10,000 tide bottles or something like that man what a trip well this isn't your first time to Charleston, uh, Mark was telling me that you actually took photography with Terry Richardson years ago. I did, yeah. I, I, I lived here for a year when I was in 10th grade. Really? Okay. So just traveling through. Well, I, it wasn't intended to be. Right. We, we were, my dad wanted to live here, but uh, I, I had kind of a restless dad. We moved around a lot. Okay. So we lived here for a year and he decided he wanted to move to Santa Barbara, California. So we took off. I went to school in Santa Barbara. Oh, yeah? yeah. yeah. Oh, It's a great school? place to take off to. Uh, UC Santa Barbara. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, good old UCSB. Yeah. Harvard yeah. on the... Harvard... What was it? It was a difficult place to get Stanford to class. Stanford by though. the sea. Right, right. That's right. <laughs> That's what they called it. That's right. That's right. We've got three uh, West Coasters here. I grew up in San Diego so um, uh, and lived in Northern California for a while. You know, we had the honor of being able to preview the film uh, because we're doing the show uh, today before the film premieres tonight. Um, and in watching it, I just wanted to say to all those who are listening, our guests, uh, Really one of the most compelling, beautiful, I would say the most beautiful piece of art I've ever seen in any genre, in any medium. Oh. And, and, I've, and I've said that multiple times and I keep pausing to say, you know, is that, and, I, and my, upon reflection, I stand by every one of those descriptions. And so I just want to say really deeply, deeply moving piece of work you put together. Wow, thank you so much. Yeah. That, that brings a lot of feeling to hear you say that. Yeah. Mm. And that's, that's the interesting thing about it is the feeling sense that comes from that piece is, is really powerful. And, and, and I see, you know, uh, it, it took you a while to put that together. I mean, you, you went to your first trip to Midway in 2009, right? It was eight years. Eight years. Of okay. work. And I went through four complete iterations of the film. Yeah. I finished the film four entire times with a, with a whole music score and narration and everything. Was and it completely different or were you tweaking, were you polishing as, as in like, you know, sanding layers off of a sculpture or were you reworking from the ground up? Starting from scratch. Really? I started wow. from scratch four times. Wow. And well worth it. Well, my, my report card as a director is going to be does not work well with others. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> right. Because it was such an interesting thing. You know, I, I, when I first started, I had never edited a film and people said that editing is a whole art form. You know, mm -hmm. you have to go to school to learn all the theories of editing. And I didn't know any of that stuff. So I thought I have to work with an editor. So I hired an editor. And I immediately, I guess in any project that always happens, you come up against the other person's view, ego right. or view or whatever you call and creative. it. creative... 
you know, perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And so I say, I want this shot to be longer. And that, and then they say, it, no, that it, that would get boring. There's a, there's a, an optimal place to cut this shot, which is here. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, well, you're the expert. Gotcha. And, and, and that sort of happens. And then we hired a writer cause I, I've, I've never written film narration. And, and so I thought we need a writer and the same thing happens with them. And with this whole process, we end up with a film, but I would watch it and be like, I don't like it. Yeah. It's, that's not what I meant. Well, it's interesting when, wow. I've, when I've been telling others about it, I said, you know, it's, it's, I, saying it's a documentary does it a disservice. I think it's absolutely a piece of art from, from the narration to the visuals, to the subject matter, to the transitions, mm-hmm. all of it. It, you know, now that makes sense. It's, it's seamless and it's, it's ab- I mean, some of the transitions are, are things I've never seen before and they're so tight. Yeah, they really. Tight. Oh, yeah, they well, really are. thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and having come to that as a fresh new editor, uh, it, 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 it doesn't show at all. I mean, there's, 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 there's some of the transitions are incredible. They really are. So let's, because that, that, that whole topic is, is a meaty conversation, and I want to come back to that towards the latter part of our conversation. But let's go back to where it all started. Um, and you talk about sort of entering a phase of your life, going to law school, sort of looking at a career that was, uh, you know, uh, uninspiring. And your father sent you a gift, oh. a camera. Talk about that. Cause I thought even the way you described that, it was just sort of the opening of a box and what you chose to do with it was not, your father didn't really have a say in that. It was just Son, maybe you should explore this. Oh man, yeah. Oh, I lost my dad recently, um, and just just remembering that story, mm. just uh, it, it, I, I just feel so much love for him now. <laughs> so, so yeah, I uh, I was um, I went to law school. I decided to go to law school, and I thought I was doing the right thing by my parents. Like mm-hmm. when I look back, I, I was motivated by fear. It was unconscious fear. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to be a photographer. I wanted to go to art school, but I was afraid of failing. But I wasn't even aware. Not, none of that was okay. conscious. Um, and and so I went to law school. And the and I, if you'd asked me then, why are you going to law school? I would have said something like, "It's time to do something responsible sure. and respectable." It's a conservative, safe. Yeah. logical step to take. I'm, a, I'm, I'm growing up into a man now. Yeah, and, but exactly. Now, weren't both your parents artists in their own right? They were. They were. So yeah. it's interesting that you had this example, but you felt compelled to, to still do this conservative track. Well, I'd been bumming around the UC Santa Barbara uh, jazz department for years and never really going anywhere with it. Okay. Um, and just going from job to job and kind of drifting a bit. And then it just felt like and and it seemed like that pressure was coming from my parents. Hmm. It felt like cultural, I just, though, probably. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, like where do those things come from? I was, in my talk last night, I was talking about uh, that that we somehow were socialized to think that grief is a bad feeling, and I was talking about with, with my son the other day, like where do we get the idea that grief is bad? Like sure. where did I get the idea that going to law school is is somehow more respectable than being an artist. Like, I don't know where I got that idea, but that's the idea that I had. 
And and I, and I love that it was at, at some point unconscious, and so it, it's not even something that you're looking at in that way. You're analyzing it on the you know in hindsight now. Yes. As if okay, now I realize what was happening here. Yeah. But you had to get to that place. It's funny. Alex and I talked about this on the. Uh, we talked about this quite a bit. I talked to this my son about this a lot as well about a relationship to fear. You talk about a relationship to grief, and and I used to have this relationship to fear like a hot stove where here it is, back away, don't touch it. And, and my new relationship, which I'll say this, it's much more challenging to actually act on this. Um, but when I feel it, the physiological sensations of fear coming, I try and distance myself from it and recognize it as, ah, this is that place where the fertile ground is. I should step towards it. Oh, yes. You know? And it's a very interesting thing to do because there's a part of me that's going, don't do that, you idiot. <laughs> and there's this other part that's saying, no, that's where I need to, that's where I need to go because I know now from enough past experience that I gained so much from stepping towards that. Oh. Yeah, one of my teachers says, fear is just excitement without the breathing. (laughs) (laughs) It's like when you're living your life as an adventure, you're supposed to be scared. Sure. And and I learned for myself that as I made my way out of the legal profession, finally, there are two kinds of fear. There's the fear that stops us, Hmm. like that walls us in, and like the fear of failing uh, fear of growing old and not having lived our life. And then there's the fear we feel when we're taking risks, which we have to take if we want to live, fully live our life mm. as an adventure. And when you're living your life as an adventure, then when you're scared, it's like, yes, I'm scared. There's again. an excitement this to is, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It's a shift. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, going back you know, to, to that leap, as far as when you were a lawyer, your father sends you this camera at the very beginning, and now um, you then still spend 10 years as a lawyer, right? Before then finally, and of course you were taking photographs and making bodies of work this entire time on the side. And then there is a point at which you say, all right, that's it, I'm, I'm, I'm leaping. And in the way you described it, I love it because, you know, the context of this show is, is referencing Joseph Campbell and, and the call to adventure. And oftentimes he says that that call is um, a conscious decision, but sometimes it's thrust upon us. And in, in your case, it felt like it was both. You did it, but you felt like you had no other choice. Well, I sat for 10 years in that law office, and I remember the very first day being a lawyer. And I, I went in my brand new office and I closed the door and I sat down and put my face in my hands and I was like, oh my God, what have I done? First day. First day. It was that clear. And for 10 years, I was stopped by that fear. Hmm. Fear of, of if, I, if I do what I love, I'm going to fail at it. And then be filled with shame and embarrassment and, and probably turn to drugs and alcohol to, to medicate my, my shame and, and just go down the tubes. Wow. And, and f- so for all those 10 years, it, it, like I was looking out in the world and seeing musicians coming through town and doing concerts and, and people making films and, and poetry readings and like all these people out there who were living and I felt like the, what's supposed to be a raging bonfire inside my heart just went down and down and down until it was just nothing but the tiniest ember that was at risk for going out completely. 
Yeah, you, you said, which I thought was a beautiful way to describe it. So I jumped off the cliff, not so much as an act of bravery, but simply because I could no longer go on as I was. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and I got myself into therapy during mm. this process. And it, it was a couple of years of working with a really good therapist who helped me see that there's a much bigger fear than the fear of failing. Like he asked me, what's your, your worst fear you can possibly think of? And it was that I leave my job as a lawyer, I become an artist, and I fail at that. Sure. And I, I don't make any money, and I lose my condo, and I become a homeless person. That was the scariest scenario I could possibly think of. And he helped me see that there's a fear that's a thousand times scarier than that. And that is the fear of not living my life. The fear right. of getting old and realizing I didn't do it. I didn't take I didn't the risk. Yeah. And now it's too late. And then it became easy. It wasn't an act of courage. It was, it was still, I was still motivated by fear. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, uh, it, there, there's a difference between, you know, courage and fearlessness. You know, courage involves fear. I think courage is, is acting in the face of fear. And, and fearlessness oftentimes comes later, where, oh. you, where you feel a way around actually not being afraid of doing that anymore. Um, so having that, you know, having the fear and then the courage to step out and do it, um, almost as if you were forced out the door mm, and, you, yeah. and you leapt. I, I love the way you play with words and well, grief versus sadness, you know, related but very different. Um, and fear versus curiosity, because it seems like in the first phase of, of Chris's uh, life, a lot of fear. We'll talk about uh, the trip to Africa, fear everywhere, it seemed like. Uh, the second stage where you are now seems to be much more driven by curiosity. Um, and how do you think about those two words? Are, are they related? Just mm. Well, I love what you said a moment ago that, uh, that courage, that in, in, when you have courage, it's not about conquering fear or overcoming fear or crushing fear. It's about being in relationship with fear, mm -hmm, containing. Right. Well, that's what my therapist calls it, is containing fear. And when we can contain a feeling, that means we feel it, like we fully yeah. feel it. And then we make a conscious decision to, like, we can choose. Because when fear is unconscious, then we don't, we don't get to make a conscious choice. Like I went to law school out of fear, but I didn't know didn't that I know. was scared. And so I didn't make a conscious decision. I'm going to go to law school. And when we're, when we're scared, like going to Midway every single time was frightening to me. Spending huge amounts of money, bringing all of this equipment that's made for studios out into the salt and the sand. And, and there was always a fear of shooting for weeks at a time and then losing everything to a, a failed hard drive or, or whatever. Or, and, I, and during that entire process, I had the fear of making a bad film. Of course. Because I, yeah. I didn't even you know what done the story... Before. I'd never done it before, and I didn't know what the story was going to be. Hmm. But, but I was aware of that fear, and I could just say, yes, I'm scared, and I'm going to do it. I'm going for it. <laughs> I'm going for it. Yes. And, and that, to yes. me, is what courage is, is when you know you're scared... Yeah, and and then in in that place of containing fear, then you can be fully curious because curiosity, like curiosity, is really fragile. Mm -hmm. The littlest bit of fear in the present, if you're curious but you're scared of the thing, mm -hmm. then you can be like, oh, never mind, I'm not curious after all. 
But if you go, I'm curious about that thing and I'm scared of it, so what am I going to do now? Yes. Am I going to back away and live in fear or I'm going to go for it and take whatever that risk is? And you know where I learned that is from the albatrosses because you can see them from a distance. They see us and it might very well be the first human that that albatross has ever seen. And they look at you from like 100 feet away and they make eye contact and their head starts bobbing up and down because that's how they say hello. And they're like, what is that thing over there? (laughs) You can see them like, whoa. Hanging in the balance. And then they start walking toward us and they come closer and closer and closer. And we're like focusing our lenses. Whoa, three inches, two inches. Oh my God, his beak touched the lens. And, And to them, the lens probably looks like a big eye. Oh yeah. And so they are taking the risk of walking right up to a totally alien being and looking it right in the eye because they're curious. Ah, beautiful. That reminds me of, of, of a meditation teacher that I love here in town, Muni Natarajan, and, and he talks about paying attention to the place where your fear bumps up against desire. And that that's a really rich place to play with. And that's exactly what you're saying there, is, to, is, is right at that sort of crossroads is where there's a lot of interesting things to dive into. And that sounds like where you were on Midway kind of all the time, right in the midst of that desire to be there, desire to make this film, but there's this also this fear of failure, this fear of what am I doing? I don't even know if I have a story here. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and, and that was one of the things that was really anxiety producing about making the film is that I made an intentional practice of not choosing a story. I didn't want to impose mm-hmm. my story onto the scenario there. And so all of the eight times that we went, I didn't know what my film was going to be about. And so we didn't know what to film. Like I never had a shot list. Wow. We just okay. went and at five in the morning, every morning we woke up, we had our cameras ready to go, memory cards are formatted, batteries are charged, everything's ready. And we would just walk out the door and be like, anybody have any intuition here? <laughs> and someone would say, well, there's a lot of birds flying over those trees over there. And it seems like the light's going to be good on them because the sun's about to come up. So we go in that direction. And we get halfway there and, and there's some beautiful light on one of the old tanks and so we filmed that and not even knowing if, if any of that footage is going to be in the film. And so it was a process of sort of holding a container for this, a story to emerge on its own. Mm-hmm. And that was hugely anxiety producing and fear producing because I kept having to go back to my funders and say, I want to go to Midway for the sixth time. And I don't and know what I have yet. I don't know what I have. I don't know why. I just feel like I have to. And, and they'd be like, well, Chris, like you had enough footage to make a really good documentary film the first time you went. <laughs> and we funded the second time. And, the, and so now you want to go the sixth. And then we went a seventh time and an eighth time. And each time it cost like between fifty dollars and $100,000 to, to bring all the gear and, and my guys out there. And, it, and there was so much fear, so much anxiety. And yet I just had this, intuition that if I just keep holding, like fiercely hold that container open, Mm -hmm. that a story is going to emerge that is going to be able to convey the the transformational experience of being there on that island. Well, wow. Because, I mean, just for those listening, I mean, to to be 
to have fear, to not have a plot, to not have a storyline, to, to finish the film not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but to continue walk through that fear and just knowing that if you were open enough, you were going to birth something. Uh, it's just because what came out, and, and I, everybody's got to see it who hears this. It's one of those pieces of art that uh, hard to describe, but it, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and so just a testament to your fearlessness or courage. Courage, courage. Yeah. yeah. Courage to continue battling for, for, uh, for what you created because we all benefit from it. Mm. I tell you, it reminds me of the, uh, the favorite quote that you sent in for us from uh, Pat Metheny. And I'll read it for our listeners here. Uh, when he was asked about his theory practice of improvisation, uh, he says, for me, um, improvisation is not about playing something brand new every time out. It's about showing up in that particular moment and making a musical gesture that is so true to that moment that it has the ability to remind us of something we have forgotten or that we didn't know we knew in the first place. And it sounds like that's what you were doing on Midway is improv you know, as you were there, because you, you weren't actually going in and trying to do this one thing. You were going in and holding a space of the unknown. Yeah. Which is it, pretty it, magical. It felt that way. Yeah, that... That quote from Pat Metheny is really like a a, a mantra. It's a guidepost for, for you. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, because what he does, it, it, he he completely re in in that statement, he completely relieves the artist of the need to be original. Mm. It like you, you don't ever have to think about being original again. All you have to do is is to to think about being authentic in that moment, in that moment. and with that subject. And we're each original already. Like there's never going to be another one of any of us in the whole universe. We're all original enough. And so if we can just be authentic and make a, 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 an authentic gesture to that subject in that moment, then it's automatically going to be original. And that to me, it's, it's just an incredible burden that gets yeah, lifted. Yeah, yeah. So can all see we that. have to do is be present yeah. And, and, and that's all It takes the required. pressure off because yeah. it's already, you know, you already embody that by your very nature. It's really fascinating. Well, I mean, part of what we do here, of course, is, is intersperse the conversation with music. And I would love to play uh, Pat Metheny's uh, song right now, Are You Going With Me? So let's hear it.
Alex, you want to bring us back? Uh, no. No. <laughs> All right. Welcome back, everybody. That was Pat Matheny, uh, John Duckworth here with Chris Jordan, Alex Opolis, and Call to Adventure. And as the title of our show goes, we talk about people's uh, moments in people's lives that proved pivotal, transformative. And the next one in Chris Jordan's uh, big adventure hit list is Africa and winning uh, a fairly prestigious uh, prize, the, the Pre-Pixte, is that how I would say it? Pre-Pixte. Pixte Prize in Paris. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. How did that go down? Because I heard you have to be nominated. So you didn't even volunteer yourself for this. Yeah, you can't apply for it. Um, and they, they call it the, the, uh, the world's most prestigious photographic prize in sustainability. Mm-hmm. And the real prize is $100,000 cash for the winner of the pre-picte. And I got shortlisted for it, which was a, a huge thrill. And, and so there's like 12 people on the shortlist and they bring all those people to Paris and have a big hoity-toity exhibition. And they called me a couple of days before I left for Paris and said, would you be willing to accept the second prize, which is a commission? And... And I said, well, does that, does that mean I wouldn't be in the running for the first prize? Because I really want the first prize. I really wanted the $100,000 cash. <laughs> to do whatever you wanted to. Right? Yeah, I was broke at the time and I wanted to do new projects. And they said, if you are willing to accept the second prize, then you couldn't get the first one. Mm. And I said, in that case, I, I'm not willing to accept the second prize. Um, and, uh, and he said, well, you, if you're willing to do it, you'll find out if you win the first prize prize because we give that one first. And I said, okay, in that case, okay. if I don't win the first one, I'm willing to win the second prize. <laughs> but, but I don't really want it. And I didn't know what it even was. It, it, it was just oh, really? a commission okay. somewhere. Commission somewhere. And, yeah. and at this point, they had seen... It's interesting, because in the timeline of things, you talked about being really afraid of being able to come up to the standards uh, uh, to deliver when you received this. And I... Uh, I was telling Alex, I assumed that this might have been because this was early on in your career. But then I looked at the timeline, and you had already done Intolerable Beauty, Running the Numbers, In the Wake of Katrina. You'd spent a year on Midway. You know, you had done these things, and then this prize comes in. Uh, and still, uh, again, back to fear, I suppose, you were, you were afraid of this commission. Well, seems like almost consumed by it. Fear of Africa, fear Ugh. of... Fear of Maybe success? Uh, fear of success, fear of photographing people. I mean, fear everywhere wrapped around this one. Yeah, huge. And I didn't even know what the commission would be, but I'd never done a commission. And I mm. was afraid of working on a schedule. Oh, yeah. Because all of my previous work, I mean, I take a long time to take a single photograph. It can take me hours of just twiddling with the camera and making all kinds of mistakes. Like I didn't want to have to make mistakes in front of anybody else. <laughs> and just the fear of, like you said, not delivering. Like what if, whatever this commission is, what if I go and I suck, you know, or if I, if I blow it and, and lose all the files somehow. And, and so I didn't even want to entertain the idea of the commission. And then the way the prize happened was they, they had the big, you know, everybody was in the room and all the journalists were there and they gave the commission first. Oh really? They said, and the winner of the commission is Chris Jordan, and my and that's heart when you knew you didn't sank. Oh, I was like, oh god, <laughs> I really wanted the main prize. 
And the director saw my face and I went up and I gave my thank you. It was a big honor. I gave a speech and the director of the, of the prize came up and gave me a big hug. And he said, Chris, I know you're disappointed right now, but he said, the guy who won, it just ended for him. This is the end of the process. And he said, for you, this is the beginning of a process that is going to change your life. Let me tell you what the commission is. And he said, you're going to Kenya, to central Kenya, on a 12-day kind of expedition into a bunch of villages. And several of the villages, you're going to be the first person from our part of the world that's ever, mm. that they've ever seen. And then I got even twice as terrified because <laughs> I was generally scared of the whole continent of Africa. And now I was going to have to photograph people, and which I'd never done before. They were always the, the subtext of your imagery, but never the focus. And yeah, this I've, was suddenly... I never photographed things that move. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All of my subjects were things that hold still. So I can make every mistake with the camera and, there, and it just stays there and waits for me. And for a little backstory for anybody who's listening who isn't familiar with Chris Jordan's work, you know, prior to this particular 12-day expedition, you were doing work that revolved primarily around shining a light on American and then global consumerism. Mass consumption, like Mass giant consumption. piles of garbage and the, the things we waste. And making it beautiful on one, in one sense and also sort of horrific at, at the same time. And trying to bring a, a visual uh, sense to these astronomical numbers that we're confounded by. You know, these, these billions and trillions and whatever m amounts of waste that just feel like zeros and ones sometimes. And you were trying to put a visual to them. Um, which I find so fascinating that, that then you are sent to a place that is probably contributing the least to any of this, right? To any of the, the, the consumption and the waste. And, you know, you're in the middle of, of Kenya in Africa where these people haven't even seen anybody outside of their tribe. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, and, and one of the most astonishing things was, you know, we, we got in this Land Rover that had extra large gas tanks and drove like six hours across desert where there wasn't even a road. Hmm. And we could see this distant mountain range, like 30 miles in the distance across just this kind of infinite massive desert. And they said, we're going to the other side of that mountain range, there's a little village. Huh. And we're just driving and driving and driving and, and we got stuck at one point and, and hours of digging out and then going through dry riverbeds. And, and we get around to the other side of the mountain range and we come to these a little cluster of grass huts and there's all these people living there with truly with nothing and like they took me they said come and see our, our the inside of our house which is a little grass hut about the size of a north face tent and I look in and there's nothing in there <laughs> there's just a blanket they don't even have a pillow and that's their that's wow. everything they live with and the way they eat is they have herds of goats and they milk the goats and every now and then, like once a month or so, they kill a goat and the young men of the tribe drink the blood and then they, uh, they cook the goat over an open fire and that's their whole livelihood. And these people were beautiful. They, yeah. Their eyes, they just had these open eyes and beautiful smiles and gorgeous teeth and skin. They were incredibly healthy. Yeah, the images the, from that from that uh, commission are, are quite stunning. I mean, the, the the people juxtaposed to the horror of the atrocities with the tusk trade, right? Um, which oh, you were yeah. capturing. 
Well, that was a piece of it that uh, I, my hat is still off to the Pre-Pictet people because um, the, the director of the Pre-Pictet came up to me uh, you know, when we were having that conversation and he said, what you're supposed to go and photograph is the people there. And the story that you're supposed to tell is about ecotourism and this kind of constellation of NGOs that are all working to, to save the wildlife. But he said, between us, you can photograph anything you want. There are no rules. We chose you mm. because of, of what you do and you go do your thing and whatever that is will be the right thing. And so when I got there, we met with this ranger and I said, I wanna go photograph the people, but what I really wanna photograph is an elephant that's been killed for its tusks. And the, the rangers were all in touch with each other by radio. And I said, any time in the next 12 days, if there's an incident, please radio us immediately. And we we'll, wherever we are, we'll drop everything and go there. And that actually happened three times. Three times when in 12 we days. There. Yeah. Can you describe the, 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 I mean, on the way in, you describe this fear and this hesitation and anxiety. When you, once you get there in your 12 days, you're in this location. Um, what was the felt sense of that experience? You talk about the people and then, of course, the, the elephants. And, and I'm sure that the, the feeling sense shifts once you're actually in it. How, did it how, how was that experience like? Oh, it's unbelievable being in, in this part of Kenya. Um, it's just wide open wilderness. And everywhere we go, there's giraffes just running and herds of zebras and rhinoceros and herds of elephants and, and monkeys and hyenas and lions. And we were camping out there. And the sound of those creatures at night is unbelievable. And it's really scary too. The scariest sounding creatures of all were the zebras. Zebras make this roaring sound that sounds just like lions. And in the middle of the night, suddenly there's this gnarly roaring sound and then a bunch of hyenas. And just, just this absolute primal wild feeling out there. Mm. That sounds magical. And was it still, I mean, were you still then feeling this sense of heaviness, anxiety of like, I must deliver while I'm here? Or were you then in the moment as much as you could be? Never even occurred to me the whole 12 days. I, yeah. I got into a flow. Okay. Yeah. And, and the, the, the way I photograph, like the intention that I always bring is, is I want to honor whatever my subject is and kind of show its radiant beauty, whatever, if it's a pile of garbage or if it's a, uh, a, a person, you know, a, a tribal elder that I met in a village. And so one of the things that I, I always did was I got down on the ground below their eye level. And that's the only thing I could think of doing. And to I just, honor, just to be below them? Just to sort of, be looking up. Right. Yeah, instead of mm. sort of looking down, standing right. up and looking down at them. Right. And a lot of times they were sitting down. And so I would... You know, I'd go and I'd hold their hand for a second, ask, may I have permission to photograph you? Um, and, and they would say yes. And so I would just lie down on the ground and, and photograph them and just click away and having no idea if I was getting good pictures. Huh. That's amazing. I, I, that was my assumption was that once, because it feels that same way when, uh, when you get to Midway and I see the, the film Albatross, that, you know, the experience you're describing on the front end 
sounds incredibly anxiety-ridden and f- there's fear and all these other things that are coming. But when I, when I see what you end up actually doing, it feels like you drop in very cleanly and clearly to a flow state that, that, is, that is right in line with, uh, you know, in harmony with your surroundings that must feel really good. And I know I've been in that place many times and it's a real magical place to be. It's not a place that sort of you can will into existence you know, and stay there uh, or not. It, uh, sometimes it just, it just grabs hold of you. Um, and it felt like that's what happened there. Um, yeah, it was totally like that. Okay. I would, I, I'm interested to juxtapose this back to consumption because, uh, you know, I'm reading a quote you wrote about consumerism. And, and I think that uh, one of the things you say is our culture is in deep denial about what we're doing to our planet, to the people of other nations and the people of the future. Um, and you say a lot more about this. And then in closing, you say, I think Americans in the first decade of the 21st century will be looked back upon by more evolved societies of the future as some of the most spiritually lost people in the history of humankind. That's a pretty powerful thing to say. Um, And how does that, you know, juxtapose that to Kenya? You know, and you're there with these people, and and what is what is the difference there? What is the what is the difference between those two places? Mm. It's interesting as you're reading the quote. I was thinking, do I still stand by that? And, yeah, right. And yes, it, I sure do. Do you? Okay. Yeah, it's. Um, I think that there's something that we've that we've lost touch with, or that we're collectively losing touch with in American culture and or in, in first world, what we mm-hmm. call first world culture, but especially in American culture. And in one way you can say we're losing touch with the natural world, um, we're, but in another way, it's a, a, a sort of emotional, spiritual process. We're losing touch with what we feel. Mm-hmm. We've forgotten that we're mammals, that we're creatures living in an ecosystem. And as we get further and further into our head, and, and into what a smart friend of mine calls the amygdala hijack. Right, the collective I love that. amygdala hijack. Um, the, the further we get into that, the further we get away from being in touch with what we feel. And it's not only being in touch with our anger and our rage and, and our grief for all that's being lost, but on a deeper level, I think w- there's a, a strange kind of taking for granted. Like we're all taking the whole world for granted. We're taking our lives for granted. We're taking the universe for granted. And we've forgotten that, that the, to even think about that at all because we have this sort of single-minded drive toward money, the making of money as, this, as if that's all there is. That's what life is. That equals success. Yeah, money, success, status. Yeah. And, and I think that our fundamental state of being, if we could, and, and all of that stuff, the, the drive toward money is all fear. It's unconscious fear that manifests as, as fear of scarcity, fear of not belonging, fear of not ha- having enough. It's just fear. And that's, that's why I, I, I love the term, the collective amygdala hijack. Our entire economy-based culture is a culture of fear. And if we could remember our fundamental state of being, if we could contain that fear, then I think we could return to our fundamental state of being, which I think is, uh, is love. Hmm. That's what we've forgotten, that we love our world, that we love our lives, the gift of life that we've each been given, the incomprehensibly amazing miracle 
that we're all a part of. That's the missing piece. And, and people in Kenya, I mean, I don't want to over-idealize them, mm-hmm. but they live on the ground. I mean, their feet are literally on the ground. And all of their food comes from right around where they are. And, and they, they live every day with the sound of hyenas as they go to sleep. Like they are deeply connected and attuned to the natural world around them. And they live in a kind of state of grace that, that we just don't have here anymore. It's interesting because, you know, our show is really uh, a sweet spot is talking about fear, right? And we always talk about fear really on the individual level. But what you get into a lot is fear on the collective level. Um, And you talk about it, I'll I'll quote you, when hundreds of millions of people all collaborate in suppressing collective fear, then we fall into a kind of trance that can lead us to commit atrocities. I think it is incredibly important for us to face our fears, to shine the light of consciousness into those shadows, both individually and collectively. Um, And I think that's an interesting difference because I've really never talked about fear as a culture and and the results of what that leads to. Um, Yeah, it reminds me of some of the things that we talk about with regards to, um, uh, for instance, uh, the environmental movement uh, oftentimes here in, right. in at least <clears throat> this is where I live. And so in this country, from, from my perspective, so often the language even that's used uh, is fundamentally based on a false premise, which is we must save our world, our ocean. If there's this possessive aspect to it being ours and simultaneously it being something other than us. Oh. It's outside of us. And there's that huge disconnect. And language means so much because it, it you know, falls in your subconscious as the truth. And you're saying this over and over and over again is it is not us. It is not us. And it gives us collectively the ability to then do what we want with it. Because the, set, this, the other thing that I notice is, is this hierarchical stance that humans tend to love to place upon ourselves. We're at the top of the food chain. The entire universe revolves around us. And you don't have to go back too far in history to look at, you know, how egomaniacal we can be to think that originally we thought everything revolved around the earth, right, as our planet. And then there was, you know, oh, we have to actually, all right, maybe the earth goes around the sun. We'll, we'll give you that. But it's still our sun. And we must save it in this way that's outside of us. And that disconnect for me at least, seems to be a primary motivator for uh, the, the destruction or allowing the destruction of the habitat that sustains us. Oh, you know, I've, I've developed this theory lately for where that worldview comes from, at mm. least in part. Okay. And I call it the Star Trek worldview because I'm 50, just turned 54. Okay. And I grew up, like everyone in my generation grew up watching Star Trek. Not the movies, but the TV show. Yeah. And there's something about Star Trek that looking back was really interesting. They all lived in this giant metal spaceship. And every episode only took place on the bridge, like the the control room. And then down in the engine room where Scotty was trying to... Give her all she got. Adjust the the flux capacitors. That's right. Um, There was never in a single episode did it ever show where their food came from and never showed anybody eating or drinking. 
no, no eating food or drinking water, and, and where their air came from, it was just sort of assumed that that was all fine. That was figured out. Right. Yeah. And so it presents this idea that we can live in a totally metal world and everything's going to be okay, that we're not part of an ecosystem. We can, we're somehow different from every other kind of creature, every other creature, like a fish has to live in a, in a lake or an ocean that has just the right amount of oxygen, just the right amount of food and the perfect chemistry, but we are somehow different. We can live in a completely metallic mm-hmm. world in outer space and be fine. And it's so interesting to see, like now there's this, this whole movement of like colonizing Mars, mm-hmm. which to me is insanity. There are otherwise intelligent people who are talking about colonizing Mars having no idea that there's no ecosystem there. There's, we yeah. have no concept of how to make a completely circular, like all of the waste, all of the food, all of the air has to go round and round and round and round. Right. We've never, it's, it's impossible. <clears throat> it's crazy. And yet uh, those are the same people that are about my age that we all grew up with Star Trek. I think uh, it's like a Star Trek mentality. We've forgotten that we are mammals that live in an ecosystem. All right, we're separate from, right? Yeah. Which is really the power of your work in, in that film and photographically is, is the connecting, for me at least, of these really abstract things uh, back to the individual. And, 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 you know, that, that's a very difficult thing for any of us to get our head around. As we're sort of thinking about your relationship to Africa and how that might have changed you, connection to a world not polluted by first world consumption. Um, you're, haunt, you're, you're shooting some pretty haunting photographs, uh, one with elephants. Tell us about that, that experience. Oh, man. Well, I'll never forget. This is one of the saddest days of my whole life. Um, but we got a radio call that an elephant had been shot. And we were planning, it was, it was right at the end of the trip, and we were, the next morning we were going to be in a ceremony where they were going to kill a goat and, and drink the blood. And I was going to get to be part of that. And I was really looking forward to that. And then the radio call came in the middle of the night that uh, an elephant had been shot. And they know when an elephant is shot because it's so silent out there. It's absolutely dead silent. There's no sound of airplanes or cars or traffic or anything. Um, and so when there's a gunshot, you can hear it like 10 miles away. And there's only one reason why there's ever a gunshot that far out in, in the, the wild in Kenya is when somebody's killing an elephant. So they heard the gunshot. And all of the villagers are all in contact with the rangers and they triangulate. Like the villagers say it was, it was to the west. And then another village says, yeah, it was to the northwest. And they triangulate and they figure out where it was. And, and the one village where it was very near, they, they found the elephant. And so we immediately packed up our camp and drove, it was like six hours, to this elephant. And arriving and seeing that magnificent being, it was huge. It was a, a, about a 30-year-old male elephant. And I learned that they, they reach sexual maturity at about that age. 
So it probably hadn't yet reproduced. It's an adolescence in that regard. She's yeah. coming of age yeah. at 30 years. This absolutely massive being. And all around it, it looked like a bulldozer had been bulldozing. It was obviously that there had been this gigantic battle. All of the, the soil was like pushed up in these berms and there was blood splattered in probably a 100-foot radius. Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> The guys I was with told me that uh, they don't have really powerful guns. There's, they, you know, they don't have an, what they call an elephant gun, which is a gun power, powerful enough to kill it in one shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had something like 18 bullet holes in the top of its head, but they first had to knock it over. And they have all these really horrible ways of trapping them. Like they put spikes in the ground that, that go through the feet and then hold it in place, and then a bunch of guys attack it with axes, and mm. they, they estimated there were six guys that had probably taken hours to kill it. And as soon as it was down, they start hacking at its face with axes, and they basically hack its face off because the tusks go deep into the skull, sort of like our teeth. Like the, We only see half of the tusk, mm. and the rest is all in the skull. And that the elephant tusks are literally worth more than their weight in gold on the market in China. So they want the whole tusk. So they, they hack the elephant's face off and it was still bleeding. And we got there and, uh, and they thought I was just going to go click and then we were going to get back in the car and, and drive away. And I said, uh, I want to be here all day and we're going to wait until the evening light. I want to shoot it in the evening light. And it was early morning. Um, and the vultures were already, there were like 50 vultures in the trees. They had already arrived. And the first thing they take is the eyes. Um, and they hadn't gotten to the eyes yet. It was really f- just killed. And so all day we sat uh, with this, this massive being. And the guys I was with, um, they were charged with catching the poachers. Hmm. And the poachers, they, tr- they were tracking them. They had run 25 miles, 40 kilometers on foot with the tusks with the tusk. all night. A marathon. And uh, to a road. And, then they, and, and so our guys took off following their tracks. And so I thought I was going to get to first photograph an elephant and then photograph the body of dead poachers because these guys' orders is to shoot to kill. Really? Kill the poachers. And we tracked them, or they, I, I stayed with the elephant, and the rangers tracked the poachers to the road, and that's where the trail ended. Someone had picked them up in a car, and they were gone. And the, the, the tusks go up to Sudan, and they're then sold on the black market, and it all goes to, it goes to two places. You know the two countries that have the highest consumption of elephant tusks on Earth? China. Well, China. And? Japan. The United States. Really? Hmm. <laughs> Terrible. It's, it is. It's a. It's a tragic. Uh, and and the, and the images can't quite get to that whole story, but they really do convey that just through the photograph because it is so. The the immediacy of that just happening comes through pretty cleanly, and and, and it, it's a it's a powerful thing to see. That's a tough transition, but. Um... We're going to head out with a tune by Herbie Hancock uh, called Mojuba. Mojuba means magic in Swahili. Very nice. Hmm. I like that. Enjoy. 
Mojuba.
You want to bring us back in, Alex? Sure. Okay. I'll, I'll accept that challenge. This All time. right. You got it. <laughs> uh, so we're back with a little Herbie. Um, you know, I'm just, com- uh, I'm interested in like what you do with that experience. It's a haunting sort of um, image. Uh, and and how, do you, how do you hold that and what do you do with that? Well, for me, the 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 key is is to allow myself to feel and that took me a long time to get there and a lot of therapy and a lot of uh a lot of medicine ceremonies to really ex- like know the value of allowing feeling to fully move through mm-hmm. and so what that meant like with the elephant um i just allowed myself to cry and to scream and just whatever, like I was seeing, feeling the depth of my rage for what was done to that innocent being and being in this open private space in, in, in the middle of nowhere in Kenya with only a few people around who I trust. I put my hand on the, what was left of the forehead of that elephant and I just screamed my heart out. And, and that quickly the, the, the rage, it, it, it's like in the act of that screaming, it, it, it evaporated and, and there was grief underneath and it just turned into floods of tears. And the, the rangers I was with all cried as well. It's just like, how can you not cry when you see what that being just lost? And, and, in, and then the floods of tears, it, it doesn't last like hours or months or something like that. It moves through like a storm. And, in, and minutes after that, we're looking at the vultures and cracking up and, uh, at how funny they look. They're just like the, the perfect archetypal vultures all waiting to come. And we're cracking jokes. And it's just like that. Like that's what I aspire to is to be in a state of flow. And I realize there's one thing about grief that I've always thought is, is it's supposed to last a long time. Like you're supposed to grieve for like a month or, or years if you lose something, that, somebody that you really love. And so if it moves through quickly and you crack a joke, then somehow the grief wasn't real or wasn't enough or something like that. But that was not my experience of it. It's like, and I lost both of my parents recently. And in the grief of, of losing my dad, like it, it, it comes in waves. Right. And... When it comes, it's really powerful, but it might last like 30 seconds. I ball my eyes out. I think of my dad and I'm like, oh, dad. And I just ball my eyes out. And, and 30 seconds after that, something seems funny and, and, and <laughs> laughing again. And, and the people that I know who I think of as being like the, the deepest spiritual practitioners, like the people who are really enlightened, like the, the Rinpoches that I know, they're all like that. Mm-hmm. Like they can be talking about something really deep and, and expressing a powerful emotion. And then five seconds later, they crack a pun and just are laughing hilariously. I love that state of flow. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Talk about grief versus sadness, because you talk about that as you relate to the midway, the albatross and... And there's a difference. In, I thought that was a beautiful way in which you described that. Well, this, this for me was the most powerful learning experience that came from the Midway Project is the true nature of grief. Because I've always thought, and I don't know where this idea came from, but I was socialized or maybe I just imagined it my own self. I've always thought that grief is a bad feeling and sadness is bad. And so if, if you feel grief 
then you shouldn't, or you should get over it as, as fast as possible. And so I, had, I sort of held it off. Like any time I lost something or, or I, I, had, I had grief, I, I held it off and was just trying to be happy all the time. And so it's like this big elephant in the room. Right. You know, there's so much being lost in our world right now. There's so much to grieve. I think we're, there, there isn't just an elephant. There's like a, a, an infinite herd of elephants in the room right now, which is our unacknowledged grief for all that is being lost in our world. And, 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 and I always held that off. And when I was on Midway with the dying birds, I couldn't hold it off. It just washed over me, however much I, I tried, because it was just so tragic and so beautiful and so sad to be with these birds that I couldn't do anything for them. They were drowning in the water or they were dying of hypothermia or they were bleeding to death internally from a piece of plastic that broke through their stomach. And there, was, and there was nothing I could do. It was, a, it was a feeling of absolute helplessness. And in those moments, the tears just came flooding. And, and in that experience, I realized that grief is not the same as sadness or despair. It, it contains sadness, but grief is sort of like a triangle of sadness, beauty, and love. That's what grief is. It's the love that we feel for something that we love that we're losing. And so, and, and in realizing that, that it's not like a feeling of despair or a kind of hellhole of, uh, of depression that you're going to go down if you grieve deeply, that I discovered that when I grieve deeply, that I feel my love for that thing deeply. Right. Because it, they're exactly the same feeling. Right. And so it kind of liberated me to, to grieve. To feel. Because yeah. then it connects me with this deep part of myself that we all have, that's our fundamental state of being, is to remember that we love other beings. Hmm. I found it, for those who are listening to this, um, share with our audience a little bit how you got to Midway, because I thought it was fascinating the way you did, you know, um, sitting around a group of scientists talking about this great ocean garbage uh, Pacific garbage yeah. patch, yeah, pile, pyre, whatever it is, and you well, got frustrated, right? Yeah, well, I heard in it was back in two thousand eight. I heard of this phenomenon called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and at the time, there was a a public meme going around that there was a floating island of plastic in the Pacific Ocean that's twice the size of Texas, right? And and my thought. Well, the, the citizen in me was horrified at this, that something like that could exist. The photographer in me was delighted. And I was like, oh my God, I got to go there. Like, I'm the guy who would take that picture. I got to go to the middle of that mass of garbage in a boat and climb to the top of the mast with my camera and make a panoramic photograph of horizon-to-horizon -horizon floating plastic garbage that's going to blow everybody's minds. And I even had the whole art installation already imagined. It was going to be all around the walls of a circular gallery so you could see it as if it, you were really there. It's a fascinating thing to consider lighting up at that prospect. <laughs> and I see, totally can see why, because your work 
prior to that had everything to do with illuminating that, but through mainly assemblage, digital assemblage. So you're like taking pieces and replicating them over and 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 over again to show people this is what a billion trash bags looks like. But you're not taking a picture, a single image of that. So to actually be able to go somewhere and say like, I'm going to get a picture of that. I'm not going to digitally put this together for you. I'm actually going to show you this giant pile exists. Yeah, like that there actually is a Mount Everest of garbage somewhere. We Mm -hmm. can go and see the full scale of our consumption. Um, And and so I thought that that existed. And so I went to a meeting of scientists, the, 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 this little group of people who were all the scientists in the world who at the time knew anything about the Pacific Garbage Patch. And here's what I learned, is that there is no Pacific Garbage Patch. It's a misconception. Hmm. The, the plastic does not swirl to the middle of the Pacific and gather itself. Um, plastic behaves in the ocean just the way smoke behaves in the atmosphere. Hmm. So imagine a smokestack, um, there's a plume of smoke that comes out of a smokestack, and if you're 10 feet downwind of it, you're getting a full face full of it, and if you're 1,000 feet downwind of it, there's less of it, and if you're 10 miles downwind of it, you might not see any. And it's just the same with plastic. Like, plastic comes out of polluted rivers, that's where most of the plastic in the ocean comes from. So if you go to a really polluted river in Indonesia... If you're right at the mouth of the river, it's solid plastic. Wow. And if you're 10 miles out to sea, you see rivulets of it. You'll see a lot of it. And if you're 1,000 miles out to sea, you might see one piece of plastic every few miles. Hmm. But it's basically just the wide open blue Pacific. And the plastic is always breaking into smaller and smaller pieces. So the vast majority of all the plastic that's been there for like more than a few months or a year has broken down into what they call microplastic or even nanoplastic, which is not even visible to the eye. And then it also doesn't all float on the surface. It doesn't bob on the surface like a cork. Like if you think of a plastic bag, it can be down in the water column, might be 60 feet down Mm. moving with the currents. And so the scientists said... You can't take a picture of this. Yeah. They, they said, if you could be a wizard and huh. reach under the Pacific and lift all of the plastic out of the Pacific and bring it all together, it would be a mass of plastic bigger than Mount Everest. But as it is, it's spread out over 60 million square miles of ocean. And if you sail to the middle of the Pacific, all you're going to see is the wide open blue Pacific. And I slapped my knee in frustration and I said, damn, I'm a photographer. I want to take a photograph of the Pacific garbage patch. And this young woman, Anna Cummins, uh, who was the founder of, it ended up being the founder of a, an incredible organization called the Five Gyres Institute, she turned to me and she said, if you want to take a photograph of the Pacific Garbage Patch, go to Midway Island and look inside the stomachs of dead baby albatrosses. And I'll never forget that moment. I bet. It's just, I, it's like I heard a temple bell just go boom in, in the, the back of my mind. And I just felt like my internal compass just turned toward that island. It's like, oh my God, Midway Island? Like that island that everybody's heard of from the Battle of Midway that's in the very, very middle of the Pacific? She said, that's the place. It's covered with the bodies of tens of thousands of dead baby albatrosses whose stomachs are completely filled with cigarette lighters and bottle caps and toothbrushes and toy soldiers and just all our stupid junk. It was haunting. I was, you know, in the film, having watched it, uh, and, you know, when the egg is laid, 
I think it's correct that both the mother and the father sit on the egg, that the egg is never unattended to, uh, and that that parent will, will fly out in the Pacific Ocean for, for sometimes 5,000 miles, sometimes as much as 10,000 miles, and swoop up out of the Pacific Ocean what has been for millions of years healthy food to bring back to their children, child, baby. Um, and over in modern culture, that bird is out over the ocean sweeping up plastics. Yeah, well, the, the, the parents feed their babies by regurgitation, the way all birds feed their babies. And they unknowingly, their, their stomach is filled with plastic. And so they, all of that plastic goes down the throat of their baby. And the, the, the baby albatrosses literally fill up with plastic. And so the, the stomach of a baby albatross is, uh, the full stomach is supposed to be about the size of a ping pong ball. Hmm. And it, but it's like a balloon. It's this really thin membrane. And, and so it's supposed to receive like a, a squid or a piece of fish and it digests that. And what's left is just a few shards of bone or maybe the beak of the squid. Um, but instead, it gets a cigarette lighter and then the next feeding later, it gets two more cigarette lighters and then 22 bottle caps and a toothbrush and maybe 250 other shards of plastic. And none of that ever di gets digested. And, and they can't poop it out the back. The, the, the albatrosses can only poop liquid. And so it just stays in the stomach. And the stomach slowly, like a balloon, it just grows and grows and grows and grows until it's like the size of a quart Ziploc bag completely filled with hundreds of pieces of plastic. <laughs> and they starve to death. And they're they starve also, to death. Yeah. And then I remember as part of the piece, the, they, they have to purge themselves in order to fly for the first time. And if they can't get all that plastic out, they're carrying too much weight, it's not going to happen either. Yeah, what's supposed to happen, it's, it's this really beautiful and to me very metaphoric process, yeah. is um, the, the, the fledgling albatrosses, the teenagers, before they fly off the island for the first time, they, they fly out to sea, they leave the island behind them and fly out to sea and they live at sea for three to five years without ever touching land. It's incredible. And so the moment that they fly off the island, it's this epic moment where they literally leave behind the solid ground they were born, leave behind everything they've ever known. Talk about and, fear. Oh man. <laughs> overcoming yeah. fear. <laughs> what, what is it like to, to, to be an albatross and, and to make that leap yeah. out to sea? Um, and before they're able to do that, to, to, to fly for the first time, they have to purge their interior of all of the undigestible material they've ever been fed by their parents. And what it's supposed to be is a little pile of squid beaks and a few assorted fish bones and maybe a piece of pumice because uh, the pumice, the flying fish wrap their eggs around pumice. Mm. And so it... it the, the the parent albatrosses might pick up a, a ball of orange goo that is flying fish eggs and they feed that to their baby and the piece of pumice goes down with it. And that's the one theory of how they get cigarette lighters and, and stuff is that it's just uh, a ball okay. of goo. It's um, in the middle of it. And so the, the baby's stomach has a muscle that just goes crunch, crunch, crunch. And it's supposed to crunch all that stuff up into a, a kind of compact little tube-shaped thing that they call a bolus, and it coughs that out. 
and what the boluses look like now, the ones that they're successfully able to cough up, are mostly fishing line. They're these tangled masses of fishing line. And those are the ones that they're able to cough out, but a lot of the birds aren't able to expel what's in their stomach mm-hmm. because it's just way too much to get back out their throat. This is the amazing thing that I find about, about this piece is that it's one part, I mean, there's the educational aspect as you're describing here. Um, and, and, and that part feels like David Attenborough. And, and you know, my family and, and, and I, my son, and, and we love watching David Attenborough. Uh, Basil watch it all, all, all day long. And um, so there's that aspect. But then there's also this aspect that feels like Koyaanisqatsi or Godfrey mm-hmm. Reggio. Uh, that's really a completely different animal. And yet also embedded with that, I think related to what Reggio does in, in Koyaanisqatsi is this sort of contemplative, almost meditative transmission. And for me, all that happens in the parts between the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And there is, like I said, an educational aspect to this. And I think our Western minds really love that and kind of need that. But as I mentioned before we started recording, we're watching this and, and I asked my son who just turned 13, I said, you know, what do you think? And, and he says, well, you know, at first, you know, there was, there was dialogue and I was, I was listening to these pieces and, and then it would go silent and I was waiting for the dialogue to come back. And then as the, as the piece wore on, I realized, oh, actually, I really was hoping for more and getting into those spaces where the dialogue stopped. And to me, it gets back to your point about this felt sense. And, and I think you mentioned at one point that you edited this after trying to hire an editor to do this for you. And, and I, can t- I can tell that, you know, an editor coming to this with years of experience would have made cuts long before you made cuts. You held people in these moments for much longer than most editors would have. And I think that there's a real beauty in that because it brings this intimacy in to where that felt sense just is mesmerizing. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it, and it gets you in a different way. You, can, you can't... Uh, there's a thinking process that gets circumnavigated in that. And so really, you know, kudos to you for pulling that off. How did you go about understanding how you could translate this felt sense and yet this delicate balance of including just enough of the educational Attenborough aspect, you know, within this piece. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Oh, yeah, thanks for asking that question. I sure. love talking about that. Um, well, uh, it was really helpful to do so many iterations of the film because a lot of the making the film for me was just cutting away mm-hmm. what I knew it shouldn't be. And so the first iteration of the film was really dark. It was all about the plastic. Mm. And the energy of it was just like, there's like dark clouds coming across the sky and scary music for the entire film. Well, and that was, was your first hu- experience, right? At Midway, it was dark. Yeah. You felt heavy and dark and you, you went back eight times, nine times? Eight something? times. Okay. Yeah. So the first iteration was heavy, dark. Yeah. And then we made more of a, a standard nature documentary. That okay. was the second iteration with lots of narration. And that felt really wrong to me too. It was like every time the voice came in, it felt like an interruption. Mm. And I finally, like when I took it all myself, I said, okay, I'm going to edit the film. I have no idea how to edit. I literally had to go on YouTube and 
and thank goodness how for you to too. edit a film in Premiere Pro. It's awesome. And there's a guy that says, okay, so yeah. you go file open. So I, and I followed along, file open, and and began dragging shots onto the timeline. And and so I was thinking, like, wh- what is what do I want to convey? Mm-hmm. Do I want to convey information? Um, and and what I came to was. I knew that my experience on the island changed my life. And it was, in a lot of ways, it was intangible. It was just being there in the crucible of this kind of poem. And I thought, okay, that's what I want to convey. It's like I want to bring the viewer with me to the island and put my shoes like right in front of one of the dying birds and say, come and stand in my shoes and see what I saw. Because it changed me forever, and, and it might have that effect. Mm-hmm. And so, but there were some facts about the birds that at, at, over the years that we we went there, we learned these facts about the birds, like they mate for life, like they just felt like it, you fall more in love with them if you know that, right? Or that they live as long as we do. There's they, they can live sixty years. And the way they mimic each other in their dance, yeah, the dances and, and the, the music, slow right? it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so there's some facts that felt important to know. Yeah. And and then the, the there was a long scene where I described the problem of plastic in the ocean that got cut because I realized it I don't need to say that. It's like it's common knowledge. We know there's plastic in the ocean and I want to tell the story from the point of view of the albatross. They can't know what plastic is. Um and and slowly but surely like the narration began to emerge and and what I realized that it wanted to be was relational. Instead of informational, I wanted it to be relational, hmm. like trying to understand the albatross, like what is it like to look out through their eyes and how can we see them, how can we see them on their terms? Like they're these alien beings. We can't possibly know what they're thinking or what they're feeling except, but like, but how close can we get? Like how, how much can we observe about their sentience? The fact and, that there are no humans on that island, that they don't have any fear. I mean, just the, the, the magic, the gem that was given to you to be able to get that kind of access is really what nails it. Because you're right up under them in their faces, like right up in, it's so intimate that you can't help. But sometimes there are ways when you're below the bird's face and they're coming in to look at the camera and it just really feels like this bird is looking into me as I'm watching it. And, and it's only, it can only be gained by that sort of access that you got. And I can't help but think that the big, huge irony in that process is they're completely unafraid of you and simultaneously, it is humanity that is doing this to them. And so they're, they're unafraid of the, the exact individual who collectively is actually causing their, their, their tragedy. And, and, and John, talk, talk real quick about the research you were doing on the, the intro and the irony that the bird was the albatross. The thing that you lead the film off with is a quote from the rhyme of the ancient mariner and you know listeners i think so many people will when you hear the word albatross 
automatically have some sort of reference that comes to mind. And again, another fantastic gem that happens to come with this project, right? It's, and, and, and oftentimes it's thought of as some sort of a curse or a burden, you know, this albatross. And, and yet I didn't know until watching your film that it came from the Rime of the Ancient Mariner. And digging a little deeper, you get into this notion that there's this guy who ends up killing the albatross. And, and, you know, there's a quote that you start the piece off with. He loved the bird that loved the man who shot him with his bow. Um, and so there's this real rich history to that word already, you know, as you enter in. And then you enter into this all-access, you know, sort of VIP pass to get as close as you want. Um, and yet at the same time, it is the very person who's creating this documentary as part of a larger group that is, that is actually causing the tragedy, you know, hand in hand. It's really amazing. Um, was that really, was that uh, palpable to you in, that, in those moments? I'm sure it was. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, I mean, as soon as I learned about what's happening on Midway, it, it immediately began to feel like a poem. Mm -hmm. And the series of coincidences that, it, I mean, if, imagine if we were a group of creative people who were given an unlimited budget to make an animated film that is the most powerful story we can possibly think of to convey the horror of pollution. First of all, plastic is just this iconic, strange material that lasts forever that we make things that we use for 15 seconds and throw them away. So plastic is the perfect, and it's visible. You know, It's not like pesticides where it's invisible in, mm. in the water, in the environment. And then of all the possible places, like where should it appear? Well, how about the furthest away from humans of anywhere on earth? We'll, make, we'll, it, we'll invent an island that'll be in the very, very middle of the world's largest ocean. With one of the largest concentrations of animals in the world at one point, when, when the albatross are all there, right? Yeah. It's a huge concentration of... And then, if, what's the, the most incredibly vulnerable place that it could possibly appear that would just break everybody's hearts? Well, how about inside the stomachs of the cutest possible animals? Baby birds, fluffy baby birds in their nests. And then, okay, what kind of bird should it be? Hmm, could right. be pigeons, could be ducks, could be geese. The, and it, it would be some poetic genius who got a literature degree right. who would think, oh, the most legendary of all birds with a thousand-year history in our poetry and literature as a carrier of messages, a harbinger of, of shifting winds and, and changing fortune, the albatross. And everybody would be like, oh my God, that person's a genius. <laughs> Incredible idea. And then uh, of all, what would the name of the island be? You know, it could be like Coconut Atoll or whatever. Yeah. Midway, this unbelievably powerful, like Midway is a whole poem in one word that describes the place where humanity finds ourselves, midway to our own destruction and caught between the mistakes of our past and the, the still unwritten story of our future. Like midway is this incredibly poetic term. Mm. And so all of these sort of symbolic like pieces of this parable are already there. I didn't make up any of that. It, it's incredible. And that the birds let us up so close to film them in this incredibly intimate way. And the, the thing to me that was the most heartbreaking was that I knew, but they couldn't know right. what was causing their suffering. They can't know what plastic is. Right. They, there's, they, they, it's absolutely invisible to them. 
And so I would see a bird choking to death on plastic in agony. And I knew, but it couldn't know that I was from the species that was causing its pain. And that was the, mm. absolutely the hardest thing to be with. I can imagine. And it conveys when you watch the piece that that was the uh, felt sense of your experience in that moment. Um, because I felt it too. And, and it acts as this really uh, powerful mirror for, you know, and I think I mentioned that in an email to you, that there's this, there are these moments in my life where I feel this real sense of, of, of infinite possibilities and yet this real granular, granular finiteness, you know, and, and that seeing the plastic in their stomachs in that way had this real sort of a granular thing of, of wow, here it is. Like you said, it's seen, it's there, it's in their belly. Where did it come from? And at the same time, there was this real expansive realization of, oh, it's not just, that's me in there. That's me in there, you know? Um, and, and that's a, it's an interesting space to put people in. And I think that's where paradigm shifts happen. And I, I, I mention this to people um, all the time, that there's these, there, there are moments where you can have a shift and you don't need to have a call to action in that shift. Bearing witness sometimes is simply all that is needed. And, and in that bearing witness, a shift happens and action can arise in numerous directions. But you're not offering up, here's an action list. You're offering up just the bearing witness. And what you did on that island was just that, right? That feels so important. Um, and it's really interesting because so many times people have asked me during the making of the film, what's going to be your call to action? Mm. And, and I think it's, it's a paradigm that we've all gotten into unconsciously that anyone who's an activist has to have a call to action. And that's not very old. Like when I was a kid, no one was making calls to action. Like Jacques Cousteau, those incredibly beautiful mm -hmm. films we saw when I was a kid that inspired who knows how many people to become oceanographers and to love our oceans. He didn't tell us how to behave. And I think of the, the call to action... There's something that I find really annoying and disempowering about most of the calls to action that we hear. Like somebody describes a huge global problem like global climate change, shows all the charts and graphs about how, how massive and frightening and gnarly this problem is, and then they say, okay, everybody, here's my five calls to action. Change your light bulbs. Recycle. Recycle your plastic bottles. Don't ask for a plastic straw when you get a martini at a bar and pump up your car tires to their full pressure when you go on road trips. It's like these, these tiny gestures that are a testament to disempowerment because mm -hmm. we all know that if everybody in the world did them, it wouldn't make a shred of a difference. And at the same time, those calls to action, they have a way of diffusing the anxiety that we feel about these problems and making those feelings go away. And, and I want us to feel that anxiety. Like I want us to feel our rage and our anger and our fear for our future, for the future of our children and our sadness for all that's being lost. And so my model, it, it took me a while to get to this, but I realized, imagine if you went to Picasso 
And you, you stood in front of his massive painting, Guernica, mm-hmm. which is to I've me been, the, yeah. the, the most incredibly powerful piece of anti-war activism that any human has ever done. It, I bawled my eyes out at the Reina Sofia Museum, embarrassed myself in front of the two guards that stand in front of the painting. <laughs> Imagine if you went to Picasso after seeing his painting, Guernica, and said, what's your call to action? He'd probably like... He might slap you. Slap you in the face... <laughs> And say, I'm not here to tell anybody how to behave. I'm an artist. I don't know how, what you should do. I don't even know, like, I don't know what your life is. My only job is to help you connect more deeply with your own self. And I respect your autonomy to behave however you want to behave after you see my painting, including doing nothing. Right. And when I think of like, that's, that's one of my favorite things as an artist is what would Picasso do? And... And when you think of what would Picasso do in terms of call to action, like you realize how silly the whole call to action thing is. It is fascinating. I mean, you're, 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 you're also not pretending to be outside of the parameters of Western consumerism. Finger wagging, saying like, do like I do, it, it, which I love this notion. Um, I feel the same way in, in, in regards to... Um, it's really, really amazing that when you hear somebody who's very self-assured about the way it all is and very precise in their knowing. And then I'm, <laughs> Alex and I talked about this. You, all you have to do, and I think you mentioned this in the, the email you sent to us, step outside on a starry night and look up into the sky and take for just one moment to say, oh, wow, actually... I'm standing here, literally magnetized to this planet by a force we call gravity, spinning around so fast around this burning ball of gas that's making me live, actually, in a universe with no end or beginning, I don't think, that's expanding. I could go on, right? Like, how, how amazing to think that you could then say, I know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> And this is, and, and, and yeah, use the, use the paper straw, you know, like at some level it's, it's, it seems ridiculous. Um, and yet that's what I love about the openness of your doorway is it, is it does give people an entryway, which is phenomenally open and, and to receive if the piece moves you, right? If it doesn't, whatever, but if it does, and then you are personally propelled to change a habit or a relationship. That's what I mean about these paradigm shifts. When they happen, they just, you don't need to then make a list. When the shift of, oh, I am completely and totally interconnected with everything around me, then automatically little things just start happening. And that's what, you know, Alex and I have talked about discipline before. And there's, there's a kind of discipline that's imposed upon you from the outside. It's a very rigid, authoritarian, sort of a heavy-handed thing. There's another kind of discipline that just arises like a flame from within and just doesn't stop burning. And that one you don't need to tend to. It just tends to itself because you have this realization of, your, of, of, of you and your relationship to the world around you. And that's where I feel like you've really hit a grand slam with what you've done because it's really hard to convey that kind of thing um, in any medium. Um, but in, in film, 
And that's what I find is so, so, so interesting. You know, you talked about becoming a photographer as plan B because you love to play music too. Well, did you know that you're actually a filmmaker? You're, you're not even, you know, I mean, the photography thing you can kind of put behind you at this point. You're a filmmaker, man. You're a director, like, it's, and, and an editor and a, 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 a cinematographer. It's amazing. I guess. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I keep guess. thinking I'm never going to find another subject that just offers itself in such an amazing way. If you never did, you should go to bed very pleased. <laughs> that would be my response. <laughs> yeah. I would, yeah. I would yeah. agree. But you know, the, there's something about that, that more open-ended approach, like the non-judgmental, non-finger-wagging, mm-hmm. not telling anybody how to behave, and then trying to honor the complexity of, of an issue like ocean plastic pollution that feels really important to me. And in one way, I realized somewhere during this process that I'm in no position to wag my finger at anybody about anything to do with mass consumption. Because like right now, I flew on a 747 to come here to mm. Charleston and, and be part of this exhibition. And at this very moment, I'm speaking into some incredibly cool high-tech microphones that were all mined. You know, the, the, the minerals all came from mine. So who am I to, to say down with oil companies and down with mining companies? And I show my film on a laptop computer. Who am I to say down with corporations? And, and I'm wearing clothes that are made by corporations. And, and, and so it's like we're all stuck in this destructive machine that we're part of, like a, a paradox. We're, we're living yeah. in this paradox. And what we need is a collective paradigm shift and it's not up to any individual. And I, I think like the whole world of environmentalism, it really bothers me. It makes me sad that there's some people who think of themselves as environmentalists and others who don't. Like we should all be, how, why is that even a category? We should all be environmentalists. But I think that in a lot of times in the world of environmentalism, there's this kind of blaming, finger-wagging hypocrisy. You, not is, me. It's right? such a turnoff. Like, who is in a position to wag their finger at anybody? Nobody's uh, outside of this. Yeah. We're yeah, all in yeah, it together. Yeah. And, and if we could kind of, and, and this is what I believe is, is there's a bridge we can build between all of us. Yeah. And that is to remember collectively that we love our world. Right. And Get in back that, to that, though, I think the, the fascinating thing is, and you bring up this point, and it's something that I uh, like to mention to people quite often, is that, is that e- even you can look at it as tragic. And, you know, from the, the rhyme of the ancient mariner and say, you know, we're going to pay for our crimes. This is a burden. We've done this thing. Um, but for me, I look at it as an opportunity. Like, you've just noticed, guess what, that in your tragic tale lies the answer to the fact that if we do this unknowingly, which really it's unknowing up until just recently, nobody, no, no human that I know of ever set out to say, let's do this, build this machine that destroys the world that makes us thrive. <laughs> nobody ever did that. And we're so just, we're just figuring this out. But in that figuring out is the fact that we can actually shift our behavior because we're causing it. So we can uncause it in some way. Um, no real like definitive answer in that, but it does, it is a bit empowering in that way because it's easy to get disempowered by being one of seven billion, right? But then collectively we cause the problem. I think you mentioned this. And, and so collectively there's this answer that we can find. Oh. And what an amazing time to be alive. 
Mm. You know, I wouldn't want it to have been Midway. alive at any other time. Yeah, at this, yeah. At this transformational <laughs> moment where simultaneously we have this collapse happening and also my Buddhist friends talk about the great turning. There's a great turning. It's like there's this great cresting wave of awakening and, yeah. and, and we can influence it. And, and to me, one of the most exciting things of all is, is at its heart, the problem of, of mass consumption and actually all of the biggest problems in our world, whether it's war or environmental destruction or social, social injustice of all kinds, racism, et cetera, all of those problems at the, at the very source, if you go to the very source of all of those problems, it's in our consciousness. It, it's in literally in another dimension, in the dimension of our consciousness and our collective consciousness, that's our culture. Mm. And that's something that we can each influence. And, and consciousness can change in the blink of an eye, in, in a yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah. it's a beautiful, you, uh, to quote you, from a place of deeper connection with self or spirit or whatever you want to call it, then we are back in touch with our wisdom and our compassion. And if that kind of shift in consciousness can be achieved collectively, then we can literally step into a new world together. And I just want to say uh, thank you for the gift you've given to me, uh, the gift that you're giving to the, our culture, uh, because it does help shine a light on our own self. Uh, what we choose to do with that uh, is our own. But uh, I, I so appreciate the work you've you've uh, you've given to all of us. Oh, you're Thanks. so welcome. Thanks for being here with mm. us today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And I guess thank you for certain to Mark Sloan for reaching out at, uh, to invite you to town. Yeah. For the Halsey Institute, he's always doing amazing things for Charleston. And, and it's, uh, you know, kudos to him for, for continuing to do the work he does and, and bringing, you know, incredible uh, uh, visual uh, narratives and artists and, and compelling work to Charleston. Yeah, Mark. I think Mark is a real national treasure, nestled in this beautiful little community. Yeah. You guys are really lucky to have him. We are for certain. Yeah, absolutely. And he just he he, he keeps doing he doing what he does, and and he's been uh, unwavering from the beginning, uh, which which is really you know refreshing. As we as we wind the conversation down, I feel like we could keep going for hours, but we have to put a cap on it at some point. Um, it's nice to sort of bring it back to something tangible. And I think it would be, you know, it's going to be amazing once there, people have access to watch this film that we're waxing poetic about. And that'll happen sooner than later. Um, it'll be playing in Charleston tonight, but this podcast will air, this radio show will air after that. Um, just as a takeaway from your experience doing that, maybe you could dip your toes in a bit to how it's changed your life? Hmm. I love that question. Um, it's really hard to articulate. Hmm. Um, I could give you a list of things like I don't eat seafood anymore and I buy all my clothes at the Goodwill and those kind of things, but I'm always leery of giving the list of environmentally responsible things I do because none of them are nearly enough. Yeah. And I don't want to kind of pacify myself that I'm doing my part because none of us is doing enough. And instead, I want to feel my anxiety about how the, the paradox that we're all caught in. 
Um, I think, well, I'll tell you a little story that I think was the most uh, life-changing moment for me on Midway that isn't in the film, but it kind of really captures for me the whole experience of being on that island. And I'll probably get emotional talking about it because every time I think of it, I, I always do. And it was the day that I accidentally killed a baby albatross myself. Um, I ran it over with my bike. So mm. I was, uh, it was, it was during the season when all, it was the fluffy chick season um, in March. And we were there on the island and I was riding my bike through the forest one day. And there's so many baby birds everywhere on the island. I mean, hundreds of thousands of baby birds everywhere on, on all of the paths and in the meadows. And, and you have to just move in slow motion because they're everywhere and they're so vulnerable. And, and a lot of times the parents aren't there. The babies are just sitting alone in their nests. And I was riding my bike through the forest and I was, for a moment, I was looking off to the side, watching the trees go by and imagining a video shot, seeing the, the parallax shift of, of the trees. And I felt a bump with my tire. And I looked down and I had just run over a baby albatross in its nest. And I jumped off my bike and, and got down close and looked at it. And the, the tire had gone right over its body. And it was coughing up some orange liquid and it had pooped out the back. And it tried to move and I saw that both of its wings were broken. Mm. And it took four days for it to die. And I went every, every evening and morning and, and spent time with it. And the day that it died, I just absolutely lost it when I finally, I went there and I saw that, that it was gone. And it was just, I had no idea how much I could care about one baby bird. And the transformational moment came, but we, we made a ritual, we, we built a mandala around it. That's the mandala that okay. you see with the, in my with film. the flowers. Yeah, um, and and then afterwards, we walked back out of the forest into the field of a hundred hundreds of thousands of birds, and I realized that I love them all that much. <laughs> There's nothing about that one bird that made it any more lovable or more beautiful or more magnificent than all of them. And I realized there's a place in my heart that loves every single one of those birds that much. And it was just completely overwhelming to, to realize how much love that I felt for, for albatrosses. And then it went another step. I realized that there's nothing about albatrosses right. that makes them any more lovable than, than any creature, the dolphins or the sea turtles or the or, or any other creatures that, that swim or fly or, or walk on the land. And, and I, that's the moment that I connected with what my Buddhist friends call my love for all beings. Uh -huh. And I think that's really the, I would say that's the thing that most changed in my life is, is I, I remember that feelings like I carry it every day is I love all of life. I love life. I love all beings including humans, yeah. you know, we're, yeah. we're living beings as well. Um, and, and to hold that, uh, th that felt like a, a, a true deep shift, like on a really foundational level for me. That's it for sure. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for sharing that. 
Absolutely. Yeah. That is powerful. And that's the paradigm, sort of a shift that that's a door you walk through and you, 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 you never go back. I mean, that's, it's a beautiful opening that happens there. It, I think um, it might be time for, to play our final song for... Well, it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful tune, right? It is. It's a fitting, fitting bell-ringing tune uh, it, entitled The End of Suffering by Gary Malkin with Thich Nhat Khan doing an uh, incantation throughout. Tell me about this. There's one thing to, to know. It's a Buddhist prayer. And Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, his intention, it's this really beautiful Buddhist prayer. And the intention is to take it literally. Okay. It's not a poem or a metaphor. It's to take it literally. Great. All right. So when you hear those lyrics, think, think, could that actually be real? Could it be true what he's saying? May the sound of this bell penetrate deep into the cosmos. Even in the darkest spots, living beings are able to hear it clearly, so that all suffering in them cease, understanding come to their heart, and they transcend the path of sorrow and death. Người nghe tình thức 
The universal Dharma door is already open. The sound of the rising tide is heard clearly. The miracle happens. A beautiful child appears in the heart of a lotus flower. One single drop of this compassionate water is enough to bring back the refreshing spring to our mountains and rivers. Listening to the bell, I feel the afflictions in me begin to dissolve. My mind calm, my body relaxed. A smile is born on my lips. Following the sound of the bell, my breath brings me back to the safe island of mindfulness. In the garden of my heart, the flowers of peace bloom beautifully.
All right, so coming out of Thich Nhat Hanh and his prayer for the universe, the one bell ringing, heard by everything, the one drop of water uh, replenishes everything. As Chris said, the literal translation is important. Uh, what a great way to close out in a fantastic conversation, huh? Yeah, remarkable human being. And um, gosh, so many things to say. I, I, I just, uh, the way he uses all of it, the way he uses his language, the way he uses his spirituality, uh, the way he uses his ability to, to connect large abstract issues to us as individuals, um, his visual representation. I mean, really, I mean, like in every way. Uh, so thoughtful. So thoughtful, yeah. Yeah, and you know, we, we, get, we got into fear and anxiety a lot, which yeah. is really interesting. And I was talking about that with my parents yesterday because I was just explaining to them, this is kind of the space I'm in leading up to this interview. I've, I'm, I'm pretty nervous and anxious about it. And, and of course, my mom said, oh, you don't show it at all. You know, I said, well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not a bad thing. I don't show it, but it's there for certain sure. under the surface. And, but it's that kind of thing that is born out of a tremendous amount of admiration and respect for the person I'm about to sit down with. Right. And so I feel like in the same way, his tremendous amount of fear and anxiety going into these projects he does is what makes them so incredible is he cares so deeply about the subject. Right. It's beautiful. Right? Yeah. Beautiful way to say it because he, he talks about with the albatross birds and when he talks about when he was photographing the people in Africa, he always wanted to do it from below them, you know, out of respect, as, out of respect mm -hmm. and honor of the subjects that he's yeah. capturing. And, and I think that's true. You know, I mean, if we're, if you deeply care about the conversations we're trying to create, and we both do, uh, you know, you do come into everyone with a healthy amount of fear, and and uh, and I think that's good. I, think I that's do too. Good. Yeah, I, it I, means, I, th I think yeah. it honors the the guests and and the, the time they're spending with, spending the, with us. Yeah, yeah. I, I I feel that too. And so I, it's it's always a challenge to then take that and and locate it in the moment in my mind as a good thing. Yeah, right. And <laughs> but, then sort of put it over to the side. Yeah. Say, you know, I, I know you're here. Right, right. And, and I think that's the beautiful thing about our yeah. show is that fear, you know, and I, and I hope that everybody who listens sort of uh, has been listening along the way is fear's ever present all the time. It's not yeah. that it's, you know, from the time we started it to the first show to what we're going to do after the first season to... To today. To today, uh it's not so much the removal of fear. I think it's the moving through the fear, right? Yeah. Is, yeah. That, is that a fair way to describe it? Moving towards it, moving yeah. through it, and actually uh, leveraging it to our uh, I mean, advantage, I suppose. I mean, if, if when you do that, like I said, I really do think it, it, it imbues the process with respect and, and, and uh, an energy that is necessary to make sure that we are um, giving the people that we speak with the right amount of, of time, admiration, and, uh, and care, you know? And you can't do that uh, uh, just haphazardly. I, I love also because he has a, he, there's a lightness about him. 
And mm-hmm. when he was talking about sort of, uh, you know, grief, and I so related to that. I lost my father and just the, the heavy grief and, uh, that came over him when he put his hand on the elephant's chopped off face. Yeah. And to tell the truth fully. Uh, and just felt that rage and that sadness and all of it. And it just washed over him like a tremendous storm. And then it was gone. Right. And as he's learned to not hold on to it, just to let it flow, whatever it may be. Yeah. Right. Um, because he's, he's capturing really haunting things in, in, in some ways. He's doing Absolutely. it in a beautiful way, but it's, it, it hasn't burdened him or weighed him down. If anything, still, it's liberating yeah, him. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And that's the thing, you know, I mean, I, back to your story. I mean, what is it that came out of your father's death? What's your reaction to that? You, you became uninhibited dancer on the dance right, floor. Right. You know, like, that's a pretty great, joyous expression on right. the other side of grief, right? Right, right. Um, and I would, I would go on to say that, that, that this experience he's talking about, about letting things flow through him, and he mentioned, you know, great Rinpoches and Tibetan masters who, who uh, have a similar way about them. Um, and when asked about uh, one of the things he wants more than anything or would, you know, looks forward to, enlightenment was the thing that he mentioned. Yeah. Uh, no small... <laughs> chore to lob into the, you know, into the fray on the to-do list. Uh, but I would say that in regards to enlightenment, that it, from every indication that I've heard, it's not what you expect. And it's a much simpler thing. And this experience of waves of emotion running through people and, and in and out, it has that sense to it. Uh, and I and I really feel like this felt expression that he's trying to convey through this film has that sense to it as well, and that in in Mahayana Buddhism there's this thing uh, beyond enlightenment is Nirvana, and and that's where the enlightened beings will go. And if it's a wall you're climbing over to get to enlightenment, you get over the other side, you're in Nirvana. And there's such thing as a Bodhisattva who uh, gets to the top of the wall of enlightenment and is there and says, I'm not going to go to nirvana. I'm going to stay right here and help other people climb this wall. Mm-hmm. And if anything, if I had to put a title on Chris Jordan, I would call him a bodhisattva. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, not being familiar uh, at the level you are with those spiritual practices, I, you know, it seems to me like enlightenment for him is just feeling it all and connecting to it all, good, bad, sideways. And and the Bodhisattva thing that I bring up, the reason why I say that is because it's that, yes, yeah. and he wants to share that with Absolutely. you. Absolutely, yeah. With others, yeah. and that's the part of it. There's a serving yeah. others aspect of it that he's really compelled to do. It's yeah. not just a solo thing. I want to feel this. It's like, I want to feel this. Oh shit, I felt that. Yeah. I want to share this. Yeah. And that's the part that I find really uh, impactful. It makes so much more sense. I mean, I, I you just have to find a way to see the film. Right. Chris Jordan Albatross. I can't say it in any other way. Uh, but it makes all the sense in the world that he's the one who did all of it, the transitions, exactly, the editing, right? the directing, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it does, it does take on a whole different sort of category, much more yeah. 
poetic than documentary. Totally. Um, well, and if you're uh, if you're in Charleston and listening to this in, in at the tail end of 2017, uh, Chris Jordan's work is on display at the Halsey Institute right now through December 9th in Charleston, corner of uh, uh, Calhoun and Saint Philip. It's a uh, daily. Monday through Saturday, 11 to 4, open late on Thursdays, go down and check it out. It's a, a beautiful work. Um, his his uh, film, which I found so incredible, he wants to essentially open source gift it to the world. It will play at the UN General Assembly next year. The full film? The full feature-length film to the entire UN General Assembly. Right. I mean, that to me... It's a pretty big I'm, stage. <laughs> I'm, I w- I'm, I'd be shocked if a year from now... Uh, he's not walking down a lot of red carpets and, and, and getting wide acclaim for what he just uh, accomplished with this particular piece. Yeah. So yeah, find it. Um, and when you do, share it. Yeah. And uh, Albatross is the name of the, the film. Uh, ChrisJordan.com, I believe, is the website you can find him. And uh, Thanks again to uh, Mark Sloan and the Halsey for uh, allowing us the opportunity to uh, sit down with a conversation with Chris. Totally. And thanks to our uh, audience for uh, tuning in. Uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. And as always, uh, Ohm Radio, thanks for giving us a kickstart right out the gates. And uh, our sound guy sitting here, Matt Zutel, appreciate it. Andrew King, Tabby Thurber, we got a wide team helping us accomplish these things so thanks to everybody along the way absolutely cheers till next time cheers brother and remember the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed celebrate the path that is your call to adventure This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com.